Okay, so good morning, everyone. I want to start uh, with an incredible episode in the Talmud, in the book of Gittin. The book of Gittin, uh, the word Gittin means, uh, it's a plural for get. Get is a document of divorce. But in the book of Gittin, around page 55, Gittin, Gittin, G-I-T-T-I-N. Uh, the Talmud launches into a very lengthy discussion about the episodes that led up to and, uh, and followed the destruction of the Temple in the year 70 of the Common Era. Uh, and it kind of talks about what was life like inside Israel, inside Jerusalem, what was the environment that led to the factionalism and sectarianism and all the disagreements that just uh, just all you know all broke out in all in 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 the in, in chaos uh, and the siege of Jerusalem and ultimately destruction of the temple and we know the last stand at Masada we all know these stories um, now in it we find uh, an episode where Rabbi Yochanan Bezakai so he is the rabbi of Jerusalem now in Jerusalem you have many different many different groups, many different factions. You have the Sadducees, which is like the priestly class, uh, and they're uh, cooped up in one part of the town. And then you have the Pharisees, and you got the you got some Essenes there as well. And you have the rabble-rousers in the forms of the Burionim, and they want to fight the Romans. Everyone, everyone disagrees on what to do with the policy. The Romans have been uh, 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 destroying, uh, stamping out the rebellion that began in the Great Revolt of the year 66, uh, and they're going slowly, matriculating their way down uh, Israel and laying siege and destroying rape, pillage, and murder. It's disastrous. Uh, now, in Jerusalem, uh, they had uh, some things going for them because they had, uh, number one, uh, natural defenses. Jerusalem is on a mountain surrounded by valleys on three sides. Uh, not only that, they had very thick fortified walls that Herod built uh, 70 years prior. Additionally, they had stockpiles of grain, of wood, that could subsist them for decades. Uh, And of course, they had natural uh, water sources. So they were actually good. They were good to go. Problem is that there were so many disagreements as to what to do. uh, And and one, uh, one small, you know, faction but very vocal and very, uh, a very violent faction, they decided that we want to fight the Romans, let's beat them, you know, very aggressive, and they said, okay, you know what we do? People, get, people inside are getting too complacent, right, because they have all the food and all the amenities. They burnt down the, all the storage houses of grain and wood, burnt it down. Uh, and there was mass starvation inside of Jerusalem. And in fact, people were dying, hundreds of people were starving to death, and the ones <clears throat> that went out to forage for food were captured, most likely by the Romans, most likely captured and crucified and just left out there to die really terrible. And that's kind of the setting for the story that the Talmud, the Talmud tells us here. So Rabbi Yochum is the rabbi of the city, and he was, uh, he was not in favor of, obviously, battling. He, he wanted to surrender, you know, with minimal loss of life. And he managed to, to sneak out of the city and to meet with the general, Vespasian, who was going to go on to become the Roman, uh, the Roman emperor uh, uh, that year. And he has a conversation with him. So actually, how did he sneak out? What they did was they, um, 
they uh, they made a uh, they they made a rumor that he was sick and that he died. They put him in a coffin, and the Romans would let people go out to bury their dead. So they put him in a coffin, and uh, they slipped him out of the city, and he went to meet Vespasian. And he meets Vespasian, and he tells him as follows: "Peace be unto you, King." King. Uh, and Vespasian tells him, I'm going to kill you for two reasons. Number one, because I'm not a king, I'm not the emperor. Right? We know that in the year 69, it's also known as the year of the four emperors. There were four emperors. He was the last of the emperors, but he was still not, you know, he was just a regular general leading the siege of Jerusalem. So he says, to you, you know, it's, 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 uh, you know, it's against the law to call someone other than the emperor king. I'm going to kill you for that. And number two, if I, if I was so important to you, why didn't you come to me prior? So he tells him, listen, if you're not a king yet, you will be a king. Why? Because the verse tells us that Lebanon will fall in the hands of the mighty. And says Rabbi Yochanan Metzakai, Lebanon is always a reference to the temple, and the mighty is always a reference to a king. Thus, it's clear that you're, you're, about, you're on the doorstep of destroying the temple, that's been settled already. Thus, you must be a king. That's, what, that's, that, that, that's the story. And in, indeed, as they're having the conversation, a messenger comes in from Rome and tells him that the, uh, that the uh, Roman emperor died, uh, most likely was assassinated. That was quite common. Uh, and the senators have chosen you to become, uh, to become the emperor. And indeed, we know historically, Vespasian became the emperor, his son Titus, he took over the siege, and he eventually became emperor after Vespasian died in the year 79. Right, that's the story. Now, uh, Rabbi Yochanan Bezakai's prediction like, kind of startled uh, Vespasian, and he offered to give him, grant him a few requests before he went back to Rome, and he requested, uh, A, to spare the family of Rabbi Gamliel, who was the family of leadership, right, the, pre, uh, the, 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 the Davidic line, Number one, number two, to find a doctor to say to, to heal one of the old sages who was fasting, and number three, to spare the city of Yavne in central Israel and all the sages. All the sages migrated to Yavne, spare the city of Yavne. And we know when we talked about uh, about the history classes and the aftermath of the fall of the Second Temple, we know that the Jewish people, though badly beaten down after the Temple being destroyed, uh, they regrouped and rebuilt themselves primarily because of the visionary decisions of Rabbi Yochanan to look towards the future of what's going to be the cause and the impetus to rebuild the nation. Now, primarily, it's going to be the, uh, the academy at Yavna. That's the episode. What does this possibly have to do with our discussion today? So, like this. When we talk about trying to examine the Torah and trying to find proofs for the Torah, evidence. How do we know it's true? What can we deduce from it? What kind of analysis can we make about the Torah in trying to determine its authorship? I think from Rabbi Yochanan Metzakai, we see the model of what we're trying to achieve. Now, obviously, the furthest extent of what we're trying to achieve. I assume that most of us here already have some sort of uh, belief or some sort of understanding that the Jewish people have accepted the Torah as being the word of God uh, for millennia now. 
Uh, and you may, many of you may be asking the question, hey, Rabbi, we already know that the Torah is the Word of God. We know that. You know, that's been established. That We've accepted that. We never questioned that. From Rabbi Yochanan Metzakai, we see that it's possible for the Torah to replace reality, so to speak. When he meets Vespasian, what does he see? What does he visualize with his eyes? He sees a general. Now, how does he address him? As a king. If you see a general, why are you addressing him as a king? The answer is because, yes, his eyes saw a general. But what governed his reality? More than what he saw, he was governed by the Torah. Thus, if the Torah says Jerusalem will fall, if the Torah predicts hundreds of years prior, Jerusalem will fall in the hand, or, or Lebanon, which is a reference to the temple, will fall in the hand of a king, to him he sees a king. But wait a minute, he's a general, look at him, right? Okay, what is more real to us? What's our reality? Rabbi Yohan Mazakai shows that not only did he accept the Torah as being true, that replaced, that, that supplanted any other reality from what, you know, how he encountered, how he, his interface with the world. If the Torah said something and his eyes said something else, well, which did he follow? He followed the Torah. To me, this is a much different level. This, you know, this is, this is a certain uh, um, certainty uh, that uh, really comes maybe after... Uh, analyzing the issues, but internalizing the ideas of faith. You know, we talk about faith a, a lot. Uh, and we've mentioned in the past that faith in our brains and faith in our heart are dramatically different things. I could prove, well, we could have discussions, uh, polemics, if you will, of faith. Does God exist? Does God not exist? What evidence do we have? What is the likelihood of this all happening without God existing? What, you know, we could have that debate. But that debate is, uh, domain is primarily in our mind. Let's say someone concluded, based with spreadsheets and, and, uh, uh, and in the lab, they proved God exists. Do they have faith? They have some degree of faith, but it's faith in the mind. They might have both. Right. Proof and the faith. Well, they, they, they have the proof, proof and the faith, but, the, but, but where is it located in their mind? They know it. And if you ask them the question, absolutely. I'm not an atheist, no. Right? But what the Torah demands of us is that this becomes our reality. Where our reality is no longer governed primarily by what we can encounter and interact with and uh, experience on a physical level, rather, right, the idea of faith uh, supplants it. I think when we become a culture that uh, values our learning and values our head and puts less value on our feeling and our heart, I think that's where we kind of go off into a different field. For better or for worse. Depends on your perspective. But mm -hmm. from, from this, per, from what we're talking about now, I would say it's a disadvantage because we allow what we physically see and what we can mentally process to take the center stage and we and our heart becomes left we lead from our head and not our that, heart well and you're yes no 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 well, no no so so i i, I no so i think janet your point your point uh, is is well made that of course 
right? Our intelligence is going to be the beginning of our process of faith. However, it cannot stop there. It has to transcend just the intelligence and penetrate into our behavior. Absolutely, and I think when we don't reach here, but we leave it here, I think that's where our challenge with faith becomes. We can't just have it here. There has oh, to yeah, be it has to be in our heart as well. That's right. And perhaps it is that the heart needs to be the dominant, not yeah. the head. Yeah, I'll give you guys an example uh, from a few weeks ago in the Parsha. Uh, so we have Noah. So Noah, uh, according to Jewish tradition, invested a significant percent, proportion of his life building an ark. Remember, this was an ark that had enough cells, enough boxes to hold uh, all the non-amphibious creatures that have thus survived. It's got to be enormous, right? And not only that, it has to be, uh, yes, of course, many of the animals are really small, but you've got to fit elephants in it and giraffes and all that, Right? Uh, according to tradition, he spent 120 years building it, as crazy as that sounds. Clearly, if someone invests a large portion in their life in such an uh, uh, endeavor, they are not lacking in faith. Clearly, we would say, right? Uh, yet, if you look at the Rashi um, and the commentary on the Torah, uh, if you look at actually when Noah actually enters the, the, the ark, the verse makes it very clear that Noah entered the ark because of the waters of the flood. Those extra words tell us that even though the Almighty instructed Noah to go into the ark when it was still bright and sunny outside and no forecast of rain, he waited until the rain actually came before he went into the ark. So uh, the sages call out Noah a bit by saying that his faith wasn't quite perfect. Why? Because to him, the fact that it's bright and sunny outside, that was more real than the fact that God told him the, the rain's coming. And he only went into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Now, of, of course, I would argue that Noah's faith you know, is something that we can aspire to, of course. But the idea being that, it's, that, you know, that the, the end point of our uh, uh, you know, of our uh, journey through faith is going to be where the faith becomes a certain degree of a reality in our lives. Similarly, we talk about the Torah and trying to assemble evidence for, uh, for its divine authorship. Uh, that pursuit is not just to change our intellectual understanding of the Torah, but rather when we treat the Torah, we really are living with the Word of God. It's, it's more real to us. It's kind of in our heart, not just in our minds. Uh, and that gives us also, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the motivation for analysis. We, if, I were to start, if I were to start and say, hey, who believes in Torah? Excellent. Everyone does? Fantastic. Why are we even doing this? We're doing this because this can help us get closer towards uh, the end point of, uh, uh, of our faith in the Torah uh, where it's not only we know it's true, but we actually live it. Okay, so let's um, let's uh, bring a few more points here. Uh, we we spoke in the past about the idea of Mount Sinai experience being the central point of evidence for the veracity of the Torah. Uh, why is that? Because if Moses came to us and say, hey, "I'm a prophet." Believe me, right? Our first inclination should be to ask him, how do we know you're not a fraud? 
And for that matter, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, uh, King David, uh, Saul, or you know, or Samuel, we, we don't know, right? And and it's it's very healthy uh, to be skeptical, uh, to not believe everything that everyone tells you, right? Muhammad comes to us and tells us, "Hey, I'm a prophet," right? Well, how do we know? It's a good question. It's a legitimate question. It's a responsible question to ask. Uh, and the Torah makes it very clear that the reason, <clears throat> the reason why the Jewish people believed in Moses was not because of the miracles that he did. Right? Moses says, it's be, you know, the ten plagues, all happened, fantastic. Jews believe him because of that? No. Moses goes and splits the sea. Jews believe that because, him because of that? Also not. Why do the Jews believe in Moses? Only because of Mount Sinai. Only because they experienced prophecy that removed any shred of doubt in, in the veracity of Moshe's, of Moses's prophecy. Thus, Moses became a verified prophet right, in front of everyone. When Moses subsequently told the Jewish people, hey, the Almighty taught me that on the holiday of Sukkot, right, you bring a lulav and an etrog, and, a lo- you know, and the four species, and you shake them in all directions... As bizarre as that would sound to us, the people knew that this was coming directly from God. Moses was established as a prophet. And they experienced it on their own. They didn't have to believe because of some uh, tradition or some sort of testimony or some sort of uh, other ancillary evidence. They experienced prophecy. When someone experiences prophecy, there's no room for doubt anymore. Okay? That's what the Jews believe in Moses. That's what we believe in Moses. And here's a central point. And that is that... If we are to question this episode, I mean, it might sound a little crude here. Um, today we are very we're very frustrated with uh, with Holocaust deniers. It's very frustrating. Why? Because there's so much evidence, you know. And there's evidence. I have spoken to people. My grandmother, on my four me and my wife, our four grandmothers, all of them went through the through the Holocaust. Some of them were on kinder transports. Some of them were in Auschwitz, right? Some of them were everywhere, like in, 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 in Bergen-Belsen, right? And, and then you have these idiots come and they say, oh, it never happened. And you read the books, we have testimonies, we have documentation, we have so much evidence. There's a preponderance of evidence towards this being historical. We have names, we have dates, we have documentation, we have everything. And then people come and deny it. And you know what? People deny it even when there are living right, testimony of these atrocities. And people still deny it. And some of these people that deny it are highly educated. Oh, yeah. Which makes you wonder... Even well, you also wonder what their agenda is. Right? They're, edu- they're educated, but what's their agenda? Absolutely. And what's going to be like in, in 100 years from now when there's going to be no one around who even remembers seeing a survivor, maybe there will still be, uh, but... You know how likely, unfortunate is that is that there's you know, how unfortunate is it going to be if people you know or, or if the movement to deny the Holocaust is going to grow? And the reason why it's frustrating to us, why is it frustrating to us? Well, of course, there's a lot of political implications, etc. Um, but I think the reason why is because there's so much evidence, and it's so clear. And you know even. The perpetrators of this atrocity, the 
uh, most widespread genocide in all of human history. They admit it. Everyone admits it. Oh yes, uh, yeah. That's you know that's true. You know it's very, very personal. But it, but there's so much evidence, and the only way for it to be falsified is if there's large scale collaboration. In order for it to be not true, you have to have the Germans wanting it to be not true. You have to have the Soviets wanting. You have to have the American liberators. You have to have all the everyone fabricated a hoax together, and we know that that's not possible. I was born in 1986. I didn't experience any of this myself. Okay? But logically, we accept that it's not possible for millions of people to get together and perpetuate a hoax. Large-scale collaboration doesn't work to perpetuate lies. And that's the same way we know that Abraham Lincoln existed, even though all of us were born in the 20th century. And he died, right, 100 years before, 150 years, 120 years before I was born. How do we know he existed? Because if he didn't exist, you have to have millions or at least thousands of people perpetuating a hoax. The only way for the Torah to not be true is if you have millions of people perpetuating a hoax. And I would, I'm saying and, and this is an event that people witnessed themselves. They saw it. They were shooken up by it. And we have their testimony. We have the testimony of the people that experienced it. The testimony is their steadfast observance to the Torah, their tenacious observance to the Torah, despite all, that it, all, all, all the, all the uh, uh, um, uh, persecutions that had to suffer as a result. They observed it even though they could have even though the only way, way they, that they could have justified its observance if it was true. Remember, Moshe gives the book to the people that are purported to have experienced the prophecy. This is, this is such a crucial point. I cannot stress this enough. The very people that were at Mount Sinai are the people right, that experienced the prophecy, received the Torah from, from, from Moses, and actually got the, the documents. These are the same people. It's not like Moshe, Moshe stresses it, stresses it uh, in Deuteronomy as well. He says, ah, it wasn't just your great grandparents who experienced this and, and, and who knows what happened. The very same people that experienced the miracles of Exodus from Egypt, the prophecy of Mount Sinai, are the people who received the Torah from Moses. They had to be on board. And why would they do that? Why would they observe the Torah if they had any doubt of its authenticity? Thus, their observance of the Torah and observance of which has been uninterrupted for thousands of years is no greater testimony to the fact that this has, you know, that this these events are true. And if we are to question the historicity of that event, right, we're essentially following the same model as those who question other significant historical events. It's the same thing. It's not possible to have large-scale collaboration. It's not possible. It's not possible to get a million people together and say, hey, let's make a lie and let's teach it to our kids. It's not possible to do it. And if, and if it was possible to do it, well, then we could really call into question. Maybe the, Hol- you know, the Holocaust, that's their argument. Right? And we're revolted by that, of course, because we know they're wrong because we realize that this is not possible. Go ahead. And people will not continue to support a lie in support of 
supporting it means you're there. That's true. If, if I'm going to be persecuted for believing this, exactly. then why would I do that for a lot? Yes, and we'll see there's a lot of things in the Torah. The Torah is very restrictive. Remember, why would someone say, hey, six days a week I'm going to work, the seventh day I'm going to take off? Well, I have a family to feed, right? That's the first question you should say. Not only that, we'll talk about the, the first thing we're going to discuss uh, today. Uh, uh, the first section of the Torah we're going to discuss is not only every six days are we taking, uh, are we working on seventh day we're taking off. Every six years we work in the Torah, and the seventh year we take off. Can you imagine convincing a whole nation to take a year off of work and not sow your field and not plant and not harvest and just rely on the mercy of the Almighty that you'll survive? And that's what it says in the Torah. Would someone do that? if they had any doubt, you know, that maybe this thing was fabricated? You know, the, um, there is a uh, famous uh, book written in the um, 10th century, I'm pretty sure, around that time, uh, called the Kuzari. You guys have heard about this? Kuzari? Kuzari? Uh, so essentially it's a book on Jewish philosophy uh, that is presented in the form of a debate between... Uh, the Jewish scholar and the the non-Jewish uh, scholar as well. They're, they're, they're having the debate, and there's a famous um, a point that is stressed again and again, uh, and that is parents don't lie to their kids. Parents don't lie to their children. Now, if it, I think there's a simple way to accept that, right? Yeah, parents don't lie to their kids, but I think it goes much deeper. Uh, we find in the Talmud, Rabbi Akiva was having a debate. Uh, with, uh, with, uh, with a Roman scholar, uh, the great Rabbi Akiva. And, and the Roman scholar says, you know, hey, teach me Torah. Teach me Torah. So he says, okay, we've got to start from the basics, right? How do you start from the basics? What's the most basic thing you've got to learn? You've got to learn the alphabet. So he says, okay, this is what an Aleph looks like. You picture, put makes a picture of an Aleph. Make some flashcards. This is an Aleph. This is a Bet. This is a Gimel. Flashcards. Fine. Study it. He comes back the next day. And he says, okay, this is an Aleph. And he shows him a picture of a bet. And this is a bet. He shows him a picture of a gimel. The guy's like, wait a minute. Yesterday, he told me the opposite, right? Why, why are you? I'm like, ah. Even the alphabet, you have to rely on tradition. Even the most basic elements of our knowledge can only be verified because we accept what our parents told us. So it's not limited to the idea of parents will lie to their kids. It means that we have to rely on our past for everything. Right? Any historical event and even any historical reality. What's an olive? How do we know what an olive is? I have no idea. Maybe, maybe it's possible that 20 years ago or 50 years ago or 100 years ago, all the, all the Jews got together and said, hey, let's... Let's play a game with it, you know. Let, let, let's change all the letters in the Torah. Just make Aleph look like a gimbal. Just, just sw- swap Aleph's and gimbals in the Torah. Is it possible it happened? Yeah, it's possible. No, but it isn't. It isn't really. Because there is no such... We, there's no precedent for large-scale collaboration. By the way, to bring this point home, in the verse, in chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, and I mentioned this prior, in chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, it makes the following bold proclamation or prediction. It says, never in the previous history of human experience and never for all eternity in the history and the future history of Jewish experience will you have a nation, a religion, 
claim to have national prophecy. It never happened, never will happen, San, the experience of Jewish people at Mount Sinai. Think about this. If the guy who wrote the Torah right, fabricated the story, the collection of rabbis or Ezra or Jeremiah, whoever did it, they fabricated the whole story. They clearly knew that they fabricated it, right? Because they made it up. And they therefore they know it's possible to make up such a story and have it accepted. Why then would they open themselves up uh, for the absolute uh, discovery of the, falsif- uh, of, of the falsification of this experience by saying no one else could do it? If I know that I could do something, I also know that it's possible someone else may be able to do that as well. Correct? So if we together made up the Mount Sinai experience, we know it's possible to make up. So why would we write in the book that no one else will even, will, will even claim to have such an experience? The answer is because it wasn't made up. It really happened. And therefore, the Almighty is saying, hey, this happened to the Jewish people only, and no one else will even claim to make it up because, even claim to have it because it's not possible to make up. It's, it's impossible to get a million people to make up a lie. Go ahead, Steve. <laughs> okay. I, <clears throat> just kind of putting this on a comparison with Christianity, uh, if, if we could, just for a moment. Um, are you saying the magnitude of the difference, the numbers of the difference? Because there are people, obviously, there is more of the world that accepts Christianity. Than That's true. Be it because they see evidence or faith or whatever. They, so I guess my question is, though, that um, it, obviously Christianity... So there's three differences. There's, there's, there's three differences between... Okay, the, yeah, I'm trying to... Okay. First, the, the, okay, there's, there's, a, there's at least three differences. Uh, difference number one is the fact that the earliest Christian Gospels are, uh, depends on who you ask, but between 30 and 60 years at a minimum after these events are purported to have happened. So they're not historical, as opposed to Moshe writing the actual book for the people, or at least that's what it says in the book, which, once again, if it's not true, is a reason for it to be easily falsifiable. That's number one. So they're not historical. Uh, number two... Uh, it's not national, like you said. It's not. It's not a million people. So who is it? You know, is it? You know, is it? Is it? You know, uh, Paul on the road to Damascus, right? Okay. Well, we maybe that happened. Maybe that didn't happen. It's not the same magnitude of experience. And lastly, uh, miracles don't prove anything. This is a port, important point that Maimonides stresses again and again and again. Moshe did miracles, right? He split the sea. Did the Jews believe him because of that? No. Why? Because Elisha revives a dead child. Do I believe that happened? Yes. Is that why I believe in Elisha? No. We only we only believe in prophets, right? Not because of their miracles. This is an, a very important point. So if JC walked on water, let's assume it happened. Let's assume it happened. Let's, let's not question. It happened. Fine. <laughs> so what? If he came back from the dead, so what? That doesn't prove anything. We have also, uh, you know, we, we have stories, documented stories, of uh, episodes that happen even, even, even afterwards of miracles happening. Miracles don't prove anything. Mm-hmm. 
right? Yeah, it may be eye-opening, but it certainly doesn't prove the divinity of anyone. Of anyone. No one ever claimed that because Moses split the sea that he's some sort of divine entity, divine quality, right? No one claimed that. So my, the point is, is that what a miracle does, right, or, 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 or the, the verification of a miracle does not necessarily imply what Christians have taken it to imply. So yes, it's possible that someone did a miracle and Elisha revives the dead and no one claims he's any sort of divine entity. No one. Moses is the villain of the Torah almost because he's criticized more than anyone else in the Torah. Right? I think that the reason why the Torah highlights, one of the reasons why the Torah highlights uh, Moshe's mistakes, if you will, is because to, to, to underscore the fact that even though Moses did all these miracles, no one ever claimed he was anything but a regular human. So if JC did miracles, I wouldn't know how he did it. I have no idea how he did it. But that doesn't prove that he's any sort of deity. Mm-hmm. doesn't get to go into the land of milk and honey. And that part always was wonderful to me. Mm-hmm. That he didn't yeah, so, so, so the fact... He for as long as he played yeah. the role. But, you know, he had limitations too. Of course. And then the Torah, like I said, the Torah points out his mistakes more than anyone else in the book. Um, Yes, yeah, so, uh, so so those are the three main differences between between the two. Uh, we don't take miracles that happen, even if we experience miracles right now, and say something illogical as a result, right? If if somehow someone in this room was able to make a miracle that we're able to just pick up and fly and land on, you know, a mile away at the, at the airport, if someone did that, right? So what? I, I wouldn't know how they did it. I wouldn't think they're God. Any more than I would think that are, you know that, that you know that they're that they're a frog or a lizard, so right? It's, it's, just, not, it's not logical. It's not logical to say, "Hey, a man is now some sort of divine entity just because he did miracles." So, are you saying though that the, the, the basis for Christianity uh, proliferating uh, over the years was more based on miracle than on? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, so, so this this is a very no, this is another important point they bring up. Based on well, that's right. It was foisted upon them. That was a lot of influence at that time. That's right. Um, so it was foisted upon people. But also, remember, the, 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 the Torah is clearly not designed to be universal. It's not. And both Islam and Christianity are specifically designed to be, to be, to be universal. Um, so the Torah is too demanding. And you know what? We have a very high bar for converts, Right? Because we realize it's, 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 we don't claim that only by following the Torah and being a Jew can someone be good. You could be good as a, you could be a good Christian. And you, could have, you could have eternity. You could be a good Muslim, right? You could be a good person and not have Judaism, right? What we're claiming that our responsibility is, is that we have to have a higher standard and we have more moral responsibilities and we're responsible for fulfilling what Abraham began many centuries ago. But we're not claiming that this is the only way to be a good person. As opposed to Christianity and Islam, they're claiming, hey, you don't believe in JC? Eternal damnation, right? Nation of Islam or nation of sword? Choose. So they, and and also Christianity is much easier to observe. If you you just accept JC as your Lord and Savior, you're good to go. The Torah has got 613 restrictions. Very difficult. Um, 
if I wanted the Torah to be uh, more widely uh, uh, appealing, the first thing I would do is I would say, hey, all they got to do is believe one thing. Ain't that simple? <laughs> uh, just believe it. You, know? you can behave however you want. And the, we know that the church has behaved however they want. You know, the idea of uh, the Christian uh, church being a, uh, a bastion of welfare, that's a relatively new thing. It's a couple hundred years old. Well, there's another difference, too. <laughs> Go ahead. The, the covenant was with the nation. Christianity is individual. Right, but, it, it, but that, the, you know, that probably also contributes to make it easier, uh, more, uh, uh, more widespread appeal, um, more universal appeal. That's right. Go ahead. Well, yes. So the central doctrine of Christianity is not to question the legitimacy of the Torah, but rather uh, what's called replacement theology, right? Where the Jews had it, but they lost it because, for whatever reason. Um, and Islam, by the way, follows kind of the same, this, a similar route, where they don't question the, uh, the legitimacy of Torah or the prophecy of Moses or Abraham or anything like that. But they say, hey, the Jews had it, they lost it. Or maybe the Christians had it as well, and they lost it as well. Um, what the Torah is very clear, if you actually read it, is that such an option is off the table. Um, because the Almighty clearly says, hey, I'm giving you the Torah in such a tremendous fashion, uh, and I'm saying it'll never happen again, right? because this is the only option. There's no more, you know, the, you know there's no... Uh, there's no reality in which you guys fail for whatever reason, you're replaced by someone else. And you know what? The Torah says three times uh, that we don't add or subtract from the Torah. Now, let me ask you a question. Paul comes and abrogates the law. What did he do? Yeah, he, well, he subtracted. He subtracted from the Torah. Right? So clearly he's not in line with the, to- with, with the Torah. Right? So if the Torah was ever true, it still is true now. That's an important point. Once we accept... That at any point in time the Torah was true, well, it itself says it's immutable. You can't change it. Okay, so once we accept that was true, it still is true. Okay, so let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, kind of uh, a, a modern response to these events. Um, if you look online, you find a lot that people say, hey, or even in the new movies that they make about the Exodus, the, the theme essentially is that uh, that these weren't necessarily supernatural it, uh, happenstances. Rather, uh, they were natural events that just happened at the right time. Like for example, um, uh, the, uh, uh, the Nile turns into blood. Was it blood? Or maybe it was clay that made it look red. Or maybe it was red algae. Uh, algae that just turned it into, you know, made it look red. You know, so that's a common, a common uh, response. And may, oh, oh, if you look at the mountains surrounding Mount Sinai, it's possible for there to be echoes that emanate from all directions and make the the Jew think that this was some sort of na- uh, supernatural experience. You know, oh, maybe when the Jewish people walked through the uh, the, the the Red Sea, the sea split. It was a tornado, and a tornado at the right at the exact right time. 
Now, there's a few problems with that. How do you get uh, a whole nation uh, of uh, firstborn to die at the same time? Like, how does that work? What natural, yeah, what natural um, phenomena. phenomena does that follow? I, I don't know. But also, it's important to, to realize, what is a miracle? A miracle is a natural event that happens at the right time. Korach. Right? Korach is, starts a rebellion against Moses. He's Moses' first cousin. He starts rebelling against him. What happens? Moses says that the Almighty will take care of him, but not in a normal way. If Korach dies in a, like everyone else, you know that God didn't send me. But if the Almighty creates something brand new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows up Korach and all his people and all the belongings, then you know that God sends me. What happens? There's a sinkhole right there. And then it swallows up exactly Korach and no one else, and it gets, gets covered up. May, was that a sinkhole? Yes. May, maybe, I don't know. But if it happened when it was predicted prior, right, and it actually happened, and maybe it was natural, who knows? You know, I have no idea how uh, it's, you know, but it, it's illogical. And, but why are they saying that? Why would someone try to question the Torah or, or the idea of a supernatural um, force uh, for explaining the events of the Torah. Why? Why? Why, do, why? why don't they just say, hey, it never happened? It's an important point. Because the fact that it happened is very hard to deny. Just like we said earlier, right? there's a preponderance of evidence, there's testimony. We have uh, really, really sound evidence to believe that it actually happened. But if we're going to start, if we say, hey, events like this happened, but we're starting off with the premise that God doesn't exist and miracles are impossible, well, then we have to say, well, maybe there was algae, or maybe there was a tornado, or maybe there was a sinkhole. Right? We, that's what we have to do. Remember, if you're forced into a corner where you know something that you may argue that arguably supernatural happened, but in your worldview that's not possible, well, then what do you got to do? You got to downgrade it and say, hey, uh, you know... Uh, Yes, it happened, because there's overwhelming evidence that it did happen, but it's not, a, it's not a miracle whatsoever. And you know what we say? You're right. That's what miracles are. Miracles are natural occurring phenomena that happen at the right time. So yes, is it possible people just die suddenly? They have an aneurysm and die? Yeah, it's possible. Is it possible that um, a nation of millions, the Egyptians, only the firstborns have aneurysm? Is that the same? It's possible? Yes, it's possible. Theoretically, right? The law of averages makes it kind of unlikely. <laughs> uh, but it is possible, right? And maybe maybe they did dive in. Maybe if you did a post-mortem inspection of, of all those Egyptians, you would find that they all had aneurysms. Hey, that's not a miracle. It's an aneurysm. Okay, but if it was predicted prior that at midnight, all the firstborn of the Egyptians are going to die, and they died, I don't care if it's because of an aneurysm. Clearly, that is an event that's that that that's it's miraculous because it was predicted prior, and it happened at the right time when it was predicted. Well, it wasn't just the humans that died as the firstborn; it was the firstborn. Maybe they also had uh, strokes, or I don't know. Every cow, every every everything died. Okay, yeah, it's true. That's true, one hundred percent. And that would compound uh, the problem. Okay, let's look at a little bit of what the Torah actually says, and let's ask the, some questions. Let's ask, if we were the authors, if we were the committee that's established 
uh, to write the fabrication of the Torah. Would we really write these words? Remember, if the Torah was written by a human or collection of humans, they were probably some of the smartest people to ever live. Why? It's the most popular book that was ever written. It's a book that has convinced billions that it's written by God. Think about that. Clearly, these people are very intelligent. Clearly, they are uh, uh, you know, great moral systemizers. Clearly, these are people that are ahead of uh, society because they're talking about morals that in ancient times were outrageous. But today, we realize, you know, uh, that they make a lot of sense, you know? The, the Ten Commandments. Does anyone disagree with the Ten Commandments nowadays? No. Do people disagree with it 100, uh, two, 2,000 years ago? Absolutely. So they were ahead of their time. So obviously they were very intelligent people, if they were written by people, which I don't believe, just for the record. Um, but if they were intelligent people, would they write this? Let's, let, let's go to the quote in Leviticus, and I mentioned this earlier. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its produce. For six years you work. Remember, we're dealing with societies that up to 100 years ago were primarily dominated by agriculture. If you made food from your ground, you ate food. If you didn't, you died. Six years you work. But in the seventh year, a Sabbath of solemn rest shall be for the land. Your field you shall not sow. Your vineyard you shall not prune. That which grows by itself you shall not reap. And the grapes of your vineyard you shall not gather. That is a quick summary of the laws of Shemitah that have been present since the times of Moses. Actually, more precisely, since the times of Joshua, right after they uh, captured the land of Israel and settled it, till modern times. In fact, last year was a Shemitah year. And if you walked into Israel and watched, you want to get a tour of the fields, you go to the fields, sorry, we're closed for business, Shemitah. And go to the neighboring field, closed for business, Shemitah. And what does it tell them? Let's have, let's have all the fields stop working one year out of seven. Now, that's not such a bad idea because, as we know today, it's very healthy for, for soil to regenerate, kind of get back its energy. It's actually beneficial for the field to take a year off out of seven. But wouldn't it make more sense to maybe have rotations that every field... Uh, takes off every seven years, but not all of them in the same year. What's everyone, what's the nation going to eat? That's a good question. Continues the verse in Leviticus. And if you will say, back to Leviticus, what shall we eat in the seventh year? Behold, we may not plant nor gather in our produce. What are we going to do? We're going to starve to death. How are we going to feed our kids? I will command my blessing upon you in the sixth year, and it will bring forth produce for three years, and you will plant in the eighth year and eat the old produce until the ninth year, until her produce comes in, and you will eat old produce. What the Torah says, don't worry about it. I'll give you a bumper crop. Every sixth year will be a bumper crop. will be enough for the sixth, seventh, and eighth. If we were the human authors of the Torah, and we, we don't have the keys to bumper crops, right? No one would argue that, right? We can't determine how much crops the, the earth will yield, can we? Of course not, right? We're human authors. Why would we write such a thing? Why would we have such a law that really only God can back it up? It doesn't make sense. It's illogical. And if we were the ones that we would know that this scam that we're per- you know, perpetuating, it can't last. Because you know what? If people follow it, 
and they probably won't get a bumper crop. Well, maybe they will for once because it could happen randomly, but we can't guarantee a bumper crop. So either the people, uh, you know, won't follow it, thus it'll diminish their uh, their commitment to our book, uh, or they will follow it and they'll all die, and then we lose as well. Why would we do that? It's so illogical. It's so insane to make such an argument and to write it down like this. Oh, you have a bumper crop. Yeah, don't worry. You have enough proofs for three years. Six, seven, eight. Good to go. So did Israel have a bumper crop? Okay, so that's an important point. I don't have any documentation that says that Israel had bumper crops. That's not the point. The point is, um, we know historically the Jews have observed this. They still observe it today, right? Um, and we know of no record of them all dying on the Shemitah. How they survived, I assume it's because they have bumper crops. Uh, and probably when they have bumper crops, to them it was no surprise. To them it was probably no surprise. Of course they had a bumper crop because that's what it says in the Torah. Their reality was more aligned with, with, with the Torah. So they didn't feel like it was, it was necessary to write it down for, for posterity. You know, if you were a farmer 2,500 years ago in Israel and you observed the laws of Shemitah, of course you had a bumper crop. You haven't expected a bumper crop in the sixth year. It wasn't such a big deal. It wasn't something you say, oh, I need to write it down so people in the future will know. Of course, it says in the Torah. It happens every year, every sixth year. Everyone knows that. It's like uh, Geico. You save 50%. Everyone knows that. <laughs> everyone knows that. So, what is expected? Expected? Wait, wait, I have a question from Dave. Sorry. Well, I, what I apologize. Um, so what historically, even, and even today, what they do is, uh, the farmers, that is, uh, they spend, uh, it's kind of, it's modeled after the six days of work during the week and the seventh day is Shabbat. It's like, it's like, it's spiritual. It's, it's designated for, uh, for Torah study, uh, for, you know, it's a sabbatical. It's literally where it comes from. It's a sabbatical where you spend time with your family, you kind of live a life instead of just being the farmers. Remember, they 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 work all the time because every every stage of the crop cycle, there's more work to do. Okay. Um, so if they never have a year off, they never have time to actually live. Um, so they you know so so we even today they have these special groups of study uh, for farmers that they meet only every seven years. Every seven years, you have all the farmers, and they're all off for a year, and they spend a year in the academy studying. And they don't, they don't tend to their fields. Okay. Pretty cool. Steve, sorry. Well, it was along those lines was, was going to be my question, uh, that uh, you're saying they still observe this in Israel today. Uh, you know, now, I mean, do all farmers, because aren't all farmers varying at different degrees of observance? Yeah, it's a good question. So... So Steve, Steve's asking here, hey, why are, why are farmers that are not necessarily observant of all the Torah laws, <coughs> why would they observe the laws of Shemitah? That's important. <coughs> if you're a farmer uh, in Israel, where are you selling your produce to? I guess various markets, I guess. Well, not just not, that. You're selling it. I don't know much about agriculture. Right. So, but you're, you're selling it to companies that use it in their, in their produce, yeah. right? Uh, now, you have a, a very large percentage of the people in Israel that only eat kosher, okay. right? Almost everyone uh, eats some degree of kosher, uh, so, um, stringencies, you know. Um, if you work a field on the seventh year, the food is actually not kosher. 
weird. It's you have two peppers. One of them was worked on the shemitah, and one was not. One's kosher, one's not. They're identical in every other way. So you cannot sell your produce in Israel as kosher, uh, and you can't sell it to companies that use it uh, for their uh, for producing uh, manufacturing food. Okay, in theory, you could sell it to a company that. that yeah. So what's what? So there are there are still today farmers that do not observe shemitah. Even though uh, I would say I don't know if it's a majority. I don't know the exact numbers, uh, but many, 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 many do. Uh, what they do? What they have to export their products, and they export them to um, to to Europe, to, okay. to even the United States, even even Canada. I know um, a friend of mine was once walking in in in, in a um, in a supermarket in Toronto. And he sees these beautiful, luscious vegetables from Israel. Now, why would they take vegetables and ship them from Israel to some supermarket in Toronto? The answer is because it was Shemitah produce. And the only way to get rid of it is to send it to Canada, where people don't know the difference. And now he's like, realize, this food is not kosher. And it's sitting there, along with all the other produce that you just assume is kosher because it's just produce. Okay. <clears throat> along those lines, in today's society, uh, assuming <clears throat> by and large the farmers observe this in Israel, um, it's no longer, they don't necessarily have bumper crops every six year, right? I assume now technology has taken over also because you can, I guess if they don't have a bumper crop in the six year, they can import food. Yeah, well, uh, so that's true. I, is that how it's dealt with today? So it's interesting because to the degree with which someone is real with God, God will be real with them. So, like I said, if we're a farmer, we're Farmer Joe 2,500 years ago. We got a bumper crop. It was no big deal. We didn't have to, we wouldn't post on our local Facebook page, right? Wow, I got a bumper crop. Wow, the Torah is true, right? It wouldn't because we assumed it would be true. We like, you know, just like no one is so excited when there's uh, when the sun rises in the morning, right? You you expect that, right? If the Torah predicted that the sun only rose and uh, on the first day of of of, of uh, on Yom Kippur, only one day a year was there sunshine, you know, mm-hmm. you would be surprised, right? But but the Torah, you know, the sun rises every day. We don't we make no big deal about it, right? Why don't we get excited about that? Better yet, when you drop a seed in the ground and somehow, miraculously, I have no idea how it works, but something sprouts out of it, why is that not the biggest deal in the world? Why? How do you get from dropping a seed in the ground something emerging from... How does that work? It's a miracle, right? But we accept, we, when you expect miracles, it's not a miracle, right? When it's not out of the ordinary... When it's, when, you know, when it's not something that you recognize as being miraculous, then it's just what happens every day. The people previously, to them, the fact that you drop a seed in the ground and something sprouts out of it was as unremarkable as, uh, uh, as anything else, as being a bumper crop. That's also unremarkable. It wasn't something that they made a big deal about it. Today, our levels of faith is much lower Thus, if we actually got a bumper crop, we would say, oh my gosh, a miracle. Right? God doesn't give us just miracles like that. If we upgrade our faith, God upgrades the way he responds to us. So the more that a bumper crop would not surprise us, the more likely we are to get that. Does that make sense? Yes. 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 
room that's seven tiers. Oh yeah. So if you if you, if you if you remember, we uh, actually it actually mentions that you um, that which grows by itself you should not reap. So of course it takes into account what happens you know what happens with the stuff that grows on its own because it just continues growing from year to year. It's not it's not quite as uh, voluminous as it was prior, of course. But that even that you cannot you can't secure and bring it to yourself. You can't say you can't stockpile it. You gotta leave it out there. Oh yeah, yeah. If it, uh, if if you went to Israel last year, you would see signs on uh, at the door at the door front of far, of farms. Everyone is welcome. To come take what you want. You walk in there, pull whatever you want off the tree. It's yours. So you can eat it. You just can't eat it if it's yours. Well, no, you eat it if it's yours as well. But you eat your neighbors if it's his, right. It's you could eat it. You can't sell it. You just can't work. You can't sell it for profit. Or work the field. Or, or work the fields, that's right. I thought you just said if it, if it volunteered, you couldn't pick it. Oh, you, couldn't, you can't pick it and stockpile it for yourself. You could pick it and eat it. Got it. Dave, you had a question. Can I pause for just yeah. a second? Sure. Is he, is there, I, I was going to do this at the beginning not to uh, interrupt the lesson, but because of traffic. Hey, Dave, you had a question. So if the farmer were to, uh, to, to reap, No, no, the, the farm, the farm, the farm doesn't got, doesn't get invalidated, and it's just the produce. It doesn't impact the farm. So the, the farm's good to go, and a lot, you know, and, and we know that even in modern times, every successive shemitah, there's more and more people that are uh, jumping aboard. Um, so that doesn't mean that their fields are invalidated, and the fields are fine in the eighth year, the first of the new cycle, they're good to go. Okay. Yeah, so, so, okay, 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 so like this. Remember, it's only in biblical, so there's three answers to your question. Number one, uh, four answers, okay. Shemitah is only in biblical Israel. Modern day Israel is actually narrower and taller than biblical Israel. So there are parts, of the, the, there are farms in the north and in the south of Israel that are actually in modern Israel, but not part of biblical Israel. Thus, their farms are, you're allowed to do whatever you want of them, number one. Number two, they import from outside of Israel. Number three, there is a position, this is a little controversial, but there is a position that if a Gentile owns a farm in Israel, they're not bound by the same laws. Remember, the Torah is for the Jews, not for the non-Jews. Thus, they can work the fields and then sell it to us. right? And lastly, there's what's called Otzer Beisden, which is controversial, just warning you off the bat, but it was an innovation in the late 20th, I'm sorry, 19th century, uh, to make it more uh, uh, agreeable for the young, uh, budding, uh, nascent yeshuv in Israel, the, the settlement in Israel, make it easier for them to observe the Shemitah. What they did was, what they innovated was, that they essentially made that the Beitin, the court, they're essentially the custodians over the land. Someone say, hey, I'm giving you the, my, it's not my land, it's not my farm. It is the court's farm. Now, the prohibition against working the land is only to individuals, 
but not to entities like the court. Uh, so that today, it's still very controversial today because uh, there are those that argue that this provision was only put in place when there were no other options. Uh, but it's still somehow used today where uh, it's kind of sanctioned working on the field, not for profit, but just for produce. So those are the four solutions that they do today. Plenty of food everywhere you go in Israel on the Shemitah. Getting, and it's still considered kosher. Oh, it's all 100% kosher, yes, 100% kosher. <clears throat> Just getting back real quick to the, um, the thing about uh, you, could, you could eat in the seventh year what dropped to the ground. You could eat it. Oh, you, 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 you don't have to wait for the drop to the ground. You, you can pull, pluck it off the tree. Okay, all right. You, you can't stockpile. Can't, can't stockpile, it. that's right. So in other words, if you can't eat it all... When in a given period of time it gets, you just let it rot. No, it's just you, anyone who wants to come in to, can come in and take it. Okay. So it, it all gets eaten, but it doesn't get. It doesn't it means that there's no there's no profit in it for the owner. Well, I understand that. It's That's just, right. Okay. Just an aside, does Israel have food banks just like a? Oh have yeah. Well, the 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 welfare that goes on in Israel in supporting the needy dwarfs on a per capita basis what happens over here. Um, it's, it's mu- I would say it's, it's much bigger. Because, um, uh, uh, you know, we take care of our own, which is one of the reasons why uh, Judaism as religion is very popular um, or very appealing to a lot of people because uh, it, it's not recent times. It's all the way in the Torah talks about how we have to uphold the needy. And how, like Rabbi Kiva says, the reason why the Almighty made poor people is to benefit us that we could help support them. And that, and in, in ancient times, for sure, uh, or even in, in more recent times, if someone was really poor, they would starve to death. You know? That would happen. That was common. Never in the Jewish communities, because we take care of our own. So, certainly Israel is... A, all the time telling me how much, how many people in Israel are going hungry. Uh, okay, so there's, there is a lot of poverty there. And it's a great mitzvah for us to support uh, efforts like the ones that end up in your inbox to help support our brethren in their times of need. But it sounds to me like Israel has a cupboard. Well, it's, it's, yes, it has a cupboard uh, to a certain degree. And uh, we believe that the people will eat even regardless of our support. But it doesn't mean that we, we, don't, we don't have a part to play. Remember, we're not feeding them for their sake. We're feeding them for our sake. Let's move on to some some, some other statement we find, this time now for the book of Leviticus, the book of Exodus. And this is a mitzvah that... uh, This is a mitzvah that... um, This is a mitzvah that uh, was in effect um, at all times throughout... Uh, throughout the uh, existence of the first and second temple. What was the mitzvah again? Uh, I'll read it here. Three times in the year, all your men shall appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. I will throw out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither shall any man desire land when you go to appear before the Lord your your God three times during the year. So this mitzvah uh, is the mitzvah of going to the temple in Jerusalem three times a year. Uh, and what would happen, they would go there, and it was a festival. It was a festival three times a year, on the holidays of Passover, Sukkot, and Shavuot, Shavuos. And what is the responsibility? Every male, a minimum, the, the, the male, women went as well, but the males are obligated 
they have to leave their houses and leave their farms and leave their possessions and leave their and leave everything and go in mass to Jerusalem. Uh, how long would that trip take? It would take up to two weeks there and two weeks back. Now, what happens if every single man, even from border towns, remember, during the first 400 years of the Jewish people living in Israel, they were in a constant state of war. And all the Jews pick up at predetermined times and leave their families, some of them, some of them would take their families with, but leave their houses and their farms and everything and just go up to Jerusalem. And what about, uh, you know, the Gentile neighbors? You know, they see exposed lands and exposed houses and everything's vulnerable. What are you going to do about that? So what does the Torah say? Neither shall any man desire your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God. Your neighbor is not going to desire your land. Why would the neighbor not desire the land? Remember, The Torah is guaranteeing the security of our land during these times of pilgrimage. How can it do that? Good question. Right? And also, let's just try to imagine what the setting would be in a fictional gathering of the great scholars that are writing the Torah. And someone says, hey, I have a preposition. I propose that we make a mitzvah that all the men, all the able-bodied men, Abandon their families and their abandon, or either bring them or not, but abandon their possessions and their fields and their homes and everything unguarded. That's a great idea. What about their field? What about their stuff? What happens when they go back and it's all occupied? What are you going to do then? Oh, let's put in a provision that says, ah, I guarantee security. Men won't desire it. Could you imagine writing that if we got together First and we're point, really intelligent? Is men used generically there? Does it also include women? Or do the women stay home? Well, the men are obligated, uh, but the um, maybe that's the, the men are obligated. The women but the, become the defenders of the home. Yeah, but I'm saying, uh, all, you know, well, if, if all, you know, if, if there's if there's an army at our border, yeah. you know, and uh, you know we're going to abandon our, our wives and kids, that's a little bit outrageous. So let's say we take them. Okay, everything. There's no one there. You could just walk in and settle down. And what does the Torah propose as a solution for the security? The Almighty. Almighty will guard it. Now, remember, we're not working with the uh, model of like, hey, we have descriptions of this actually happening. Well, we do have actually, we do have descriptions. Uh, for example, the beginning of the book of, uh, of Samuel talks about the pilgrimage. But this was a mitzvah that, that happened, you know, three times a year, everyone comes to Jerusalem. Right? You mean the, 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 uh, the, Seder that we have every Passover is modeled after the, 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 the festivities that would happen in Jerusalem every Passover uh, Eve. So you're saying it was, you said it was two weeks there, two weeks back? Well, a, a maximum. Okay. There were people of the furthest extents. Some people were gone for a month. A month. They did it three times a year, though, so they were gone. Yes, yeah, so some of them would just stay, you know, would just stay there. But remember, uh, th- there are exceptions where someone could say, hey, it's too far, or the roads are too muddy, or my family needs me, right? There are exceptions like that. And in fact, uh, uh, Passover is the one, mitz- one time where they all have to be there, and there's a, there's a backdrop Passover, Passover, Passover number two, uh, because it's called Pesach Sheni, where they have the option, uh, if they miss it, missed it the first time, there's a makeup date. Kind of like if you want to uh, 
uh, you want to push your your tax filing. You want to you, you would grant an extension. Like I don't want to file it in uh, in April. Let me file it in May or in uh, September, whatever it is. But think about that. Would a human author conceive of something as outrageous as a plot as a plan to leave everything unguarded and just rely on God? I don't think so. Because, once again, it's illogical if you don't have the options of actually backing it up. Another one here. Let's listen to this, guys. Well, did this actually happen? Yes, it did. Of course it happened. So, so, and there was never any incidents where... We have no recorded incidents. But remember, in our perception, this would be a miracle. To them, it's what was in the Torah. So clearly this is what happened. It's unremarkable to them. What about the Yom Kippur War? I mean, they studied our religion and realized we were going to be all tied up with religious motivations and so on and the attack yeah so so your your point your point john is that is 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 very well taken and that is uh like in the yom kippur war that they attacked us at a time of vulnerability yes wouldn't people in ancient times as well do the same thing when we had isn't that isn't the, isn't this you know uh, militarily if you're going to attack someone doesn't it make sense to attack them with their most vulnerable with surprise attack well, why wouldn't people do that? Why don't we have records of uh, three times a year the Jewish people had to slug their way back to their land because it was occupied? Well, if God's running the show, right? If God's running the show and God wrote, wrote, wrote this prediction of guaranteed security, he could back it up. If a human wrote it, they wouldn't be able to back it up. And then, well, what do you have? You either have the Jews not observing it or they observe it and then they lose their lands, and then they drop it. Either way, the Torah won't continue. The Torah did continue, that's testimony, that indeed the Almighty backed up his pledge. Did the people come with offerings? They came as offerings, the price when they bought it. Oh, yeah, yes. So how did yeah, like the, the, it's described what, what happened. Remember, they took down all the signs leading to Jerusalem, kind of like the way the, uh, the French did. When the, when the Germans were entering France, they took down all the road signs. You know, let the Germans try to figure out how to get to Paris, right? Um, what they did on the way to Jerusalem, they took down all the signs. They took down all the signs. Why? Because they wanted it to be an atmosphere. Everyone's like, we're going to Jerusalem. Where's Jerusalem? And everyone's asking everyone, how do we get there? It was like a whole experience. Everyone's going to Jerusalem. We're, you know, everyone's walking up by, together in, in unison. Everyone, they're singing songs and like, they took down the signs, and now everyone's talking about where's Jerusalem, you know? Like that, 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 was, you know, that was one of the things that they did. We have descriptions of, of, of these events. In modern is, oh, he said the three festivals, I think he said, were Shavuos, um, uh, Sukkot. Sukkot, and uh, Passover. Passover. Okay, but in modern times, there are either people not observing it or it's done Well, so we don't have a temple, remember? So, so... Um, um, so, but we, so, so therefore, the military we didn't obviously during the Yom Kippur War uh, just the military wasn't in Jerusalem. I mean, they still well, they still the had war. people um, in in the in Sinai right. when the the Egyptians mounted a surprise attack. They had people there, um, but it was it was undermanned the uh, Barlev line, which is the fortification right. that set up along uh, alongside the border with Egypt. Which is an absolute waste of money and manpower and everything. But, um, but in, I understand. But in biblical times, the army would have been, in theory, 
at the festivals, right? There was Every, all able-bodied men. What does that mean? That right. covers everyone. So there wasn't any defense. You just got. You're relying on God. You're relying on God. And that's what the book says, and the humans, human authors would never write that. Let's go on to the Torah's military conscription. You know, I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember the drafts and things like that. Oh, yeah. I'm sure Dick, you are right. But listen to how the Torah does does a does a, does a military conscription, right? Let's see, you need a you need a, a, a you need a, a, a soldier body for uh, for the war. What are you going to do? Now, this is from Deuteronomy. So we have one from Leviticus, one from Exodus, and this is a description from Deuteronomy. Quote: uh, When you go out to battle against your enemies, and you see horses and chariots and a people greater than you. You shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Okay, you see a, a massive army? Don't worry, the Almighty is with you. Okay. And the officers should speak to the people, saying, What man is there that has built a new house and has not begun to live in it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in battle, and another man live in it. They make an announcement. They collect all the soldiers and say, Okay, who here recently built a home, didn't yet move in, go back home. You're out. Isn't that a bizarre uh, uh, way to uh, be uh, exemption? I don't think they're Vietnam, right? Who's they have built a house but they move in, right? Number one. Number two, who has planted a vineyard and has not used its fruit? Let him go return to his house, lest he die in battle, and another man uses his fruit. Who is the man that has betrothed a wife and has not married her? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in battle, and another man take her. And lastly, and the officers shall speak to the people and say, Who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest, he, lest his brethren's heart melt like his heart. Four exemptions. Someone who built a house didn't move in. Someone who planted a vineyard didn't actually use its fruits. Someone who betrothed a woman and did not marry her. And someone who's fearful. doesn't say anything about someone who has a bad leg or something like that. Someone who has a weak heart. Someone who has multi-directional subluxation of both. None of that. Right? What are the exemptions? Someone who you know, did some sort of uh, starting a project but not finishing it, and someone who's faint-hearted. Now, why would they do that? This seems to be very, you know, this is a bizarre barometer of who is worthy to go into battle. So the Talmud tells us that the reason why they did this is because really they wanted to get rid of the faint-hearted and the fearful faint-hearted and fearful because of sin. And they didn't want to embarrass the people and say, hey, who here is so sinful that they're scared of their sins and they steer that would imperil them in battle? You know why? Because then the people that get up and leave, I was like, oh, that guy's a sinner. I didn't know about it. Hmm, right, let's, let's put a note there, right? Sinner, when I get back to town, you know? They didn't want to do that, so they wanted to be able to save people's face. Let people save face, let them leave without having to be pointed out as a sinner. So they say, oh, maybe the guy built this house. You don't, you don't know who built a house or planted a vineyard or betrothed a woman. Really, I want to get rid of people that were, that were fearful because of sin. Think about this. How impractical would this be nowadays? Anyone who's fearful of sin, go back home. First of all, why is that even a barometer for someone's ability to engage in warfare. Number one. Number two, why are we letting everyone leave? Like, you know, it's, 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 it's so impractical. What happens if everyone says, oh, I'm fearful of sin, when you're left with four, like, old, really religious, pious guys? 
That's how you're going to war? What this is describing is the fact that when the Jewish people went into war in ancient times, it was spiritual. The only thing that mattered was who is spiritually able. Who is the Almighty not going to let falter on the battlefield? That's all that mattered. In their heads, the military, uh, the actual combat... Right, all that was, you know, that that that, that didn't really really. Mess. That's an afterthought almost. We don't talk about who's mighty, who's strong, because the war is going to be is, is going to be uh, overseen by the Almighty, and the Almighty will make sure that the pious will win. <coughs> that's all. That's all that matters. But if the Almighty wasn't really a factor in authoring this book, it was just a bunch of really clever. Uh, individuals that wrote, made up this whole myth, it's all a hoax, wouldn't they imperil the continuity of the nation, thus the continuity of observance of their myth and hoax, by saying, let only, let's get rid of all the warriors, potentially, let's get rid of all the young people that just recently betrothed the woman, let's get rid of them, we only, all we need is God. Wouldn't that imperil that? Would 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 we in the right mind? Would we say, "Hey, that's the, this is a good idea. This is how we shall select our warriors. This makes a lot of sense." Now, remember, if it's if it's God, of course, God has the ability to determine who's going to win the war. Of course, obviously, if any definition that we accept of God, right? They have uh, the, the 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 definition has within it the fact that the that that, that this deity has the power to determine outcomes of mortal battles, of course. But if humans wrote this, how would they come up with this? How would this get past the last revisions? How would this, maybe this would enter the rough draft. How would this make it into the final book? It's outrageous, inconceivable. Right? I think... Like, we have to really ask the question. Let, let's imagine that this, this indeed was written by humans. Let's imagine. Why would this end up in the final, the final edition? It seems so bizarre. And lastly, uh, before we, we conclude here, the Torah makes a prediction, or the Torah makes a series of predictions that are all interlinked. And I'm going to read from several parts of the Torah. Uh, the prediction being that the Jewish people will endure as an eternal nation. And by the way, that prediction on, on its own is very powerful. Because we know that the Jewish people have indeed endured. We're still around today. And we have history of our, uh, you know, of our antecedents for thousands of years. We don't really have a lot of nations that have existed for so long. So, like this, we know is a prediction that actually came true, um, and we see the prediction is uh, repeated multiple times. In fact, just two weeks ago, we read it in, the, in, in the Torah. God tells Abraham, "I'll establish this covenant, this pact, this treaty between me and you, uh, and your descendants after you throughout the generations, an eternal covenant to be your God and the God of your descendants after you." This is in Genesis chapter seventeen, Leviticus. It's repeated. 
Yet even so, even while they are in their enemy's land, I will not reject or spurn them, lest by wiping them out I may void my covenant to them. Right? So God's saying, listen, no matter how bad things get, the Jewish people will endure. No matter what, as bad as it gets, because this is God making this pledge. He made the pledge to Abraham, and no matter what happens, this is going to be true and, and uh, fulfilled. Etc. There's many, and there's many other sources. Well, I'm skipping a few sources for the for for, uh, uh, for the sake of uh, expediency. Now, the fact that there's an eternal nation that's really not so unique. It's not unprecedented because we find other nations that really have lasted for a long time. In fact, the Chinese Chinese are essentially the same nation that they were, you know, two thousand years ago. Um, so this unto its own wouldn't be that remarkable. Yes, we're an eternal nation, but there are other eternal nations. Um, the Indians, um, they also trace their uh, history uh, back for thousands of years. So the fact that we are eternal, that unto its own, that is not so unique. However, what we do find is that every reason for a nation dissolving Every potential conceivable reason that in history has dissolved the nation has actually happened to us. We were scattered. We didn't have a common land. We didn't even speak the same language. We were hated. We were small in number. All the factors that should amount to the nation being destroyed were present in our history. And not only that, all of them were predicted in the Torah. The Torah makes a competing or oxymoronic predictions. Number one, it says you'll be small a nation, you'll be hated, you'll be scattered, you'll survive. Those things shouldn't go together. Because when you get scattered, you disappear. When you're hated, you're destroyed. When you're small in number, you assimilate. Yet the Torah says all these things together. I'll go through, go through the verses here. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 28. You'll be torn from the land uh, with which you're about to uh, occupy. The Torah predicts that we will be exiled. And God shall scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you will serve other gods of wood and stone whom your forefathers are not known. We know this has actually happened. The Jewish people were exiled from the land multiple times. We're scattered throughout the, throughout, throughout, throughout the nations. Another one, this is the next uh, chapter, verse 20. And Hashem removed them from upon their soil with anger and with wrath and with great fury and cast them to another land as this very day. A prediction that we know happened multiple times. We get settled in a place, we get bounced out. 1306 from France, right? 12, uh, 1290 from England, uh, 1492 from uh, Spain and Portugal. We know the atrocities that happened in Germany. We know what happened, of course, in the Ukraine in the 17th century. Every place we settle down, we get kicked out. Right? The uh, golden age of, of Spain comes to a, a halt in the 12th century with the Almohads. Right? And even historically, right? the Jews are in, in Israel, comes along the Assyrians, and they send the Jewish people of the north packing. Comes along a couple hundred years later, the Babylonians with Nebuchadnezzar, the Jews are finally ascended to exile in Babylon. Right. The Romans arrive. Of course, we have the Persians, unforgettable. The, <laughs> the Greeks as well in the interim. 
And then the Romans arrive, and they sent us packing. They destroyed Jerusalem. They renamed Jerusalem. They sent the Jews scattered throughout the world. This is a pattern throughout history. We get scattered, predicted in the Torah. And yet we survived. Well, why did we survive? Maybe we were so dominant that we just overcame our new hosts. Yet, this is again from Deuteronomy, and you shall remain few in number. The Torah predicts that although we will endure for thousands of years, we will never be able to overwhelm anyone because we'll be so small. Do you know that in the year 2000, I might have mentioned this before, there was a census done in China that determined how many people actually live here. And every census has a margin of error. The margin of error for the census of China in the year 2000 was plus or minus 48 million people. (laughs) Thus, when you want to know how many people live in China, it's a number anywhere within a a range of 96 million people. Now, how many times can our nation fit into the margin of error of China? (laughs) Wait, we, we... in numbers-wise, we're 0.2% of population. We're, we're so small, it, it, we should be almost irrelevant. You know? We should be an afterthought. We're small, small number, and you know what? We were a small number back in the day as well. We never were huge. We're like a boutique people. <laughs> and the Torah predicts it. Yet, this is another verse from Deuteronomy, this was chapter 4, God will then scatter you among the nations, and only a small number will remain amongst the nations that where God shall lead you. We'll be scattered. We'll be small. There were maybe uh, between 4 and 10 million people living under the Romans. And there's 14 million Jews, 14 to 18 million Jews around today. We haven't really grown that much. We're still small. Did he talk about people who returned, those that will discover huh? that they're Jewish, that they didn't know before? Well, we'll talk about that as well. We'll get that, that in a little bit. But what does this mean? Think about this. Think about how these predictions are all... They're all uh, competing with, they're, they're all illogical. We'll stay small in number, that happened. We'll be scattered, that happened. We'll be under the constant threat of anti-Semitism. I'll read your quote here, this is from Deuteronomy chapter 28. Among those nations you shall find no repose, not a foot or, of ground to stand upon. You can't ever, ever get settled down. You settle down, you get kicked out. You get settled down, you get kicked out. You will live in constant suspense and stand in dread both day and night, never sure of your existence. And in the morning you say, would, an, would that it were evening. And even you say, would that it were morning, for the dread of your heart must feel and the sight of your eyes must see. We can never settle down. We'll always get hated. And what happens to hated people? They get mistreated and they get destroyed. Yet, we're hated, we're small, we're scattered, and we survived. All four of those things predicted in the Torah. And not only that, uh, back to what Leslie mentioned. We'll go back to the land of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 30. And the Lord your God will undo your captivity, have compassion upon you, and will return and gather you from all the nations amongst whom the Lord has scattered you. If you're outcast, will be the utmost parts of the heaven. From there, your Lord will gather you from there who will bring you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you'll possess it. He will do you good and multiply you more than your fathers. The Torah is making a prediction right, that has happened indeed in history twice. And no more. Both times to us. We will be kicked out of land, scattered throughout the nations, brought back to the land. Kicked out again. And now we know we're back in Israel. These are historical anomalies. They don't happen. 
This doesn't happen because the nation gets scattered, they disappear. That's what happens. Yet somehow, the author of the Torah knew and was bold enough to predict things that have never happened in any other time, unprecedented events. And we know, we can read in the Torah, we know today we have the gift of being post-facto to know that these things actually happened. If I told you 200 years ago that in 200 years there's going to be 6 million Jews living in Israel, you would assign me to the psych ward. There weren't, there were, I don't know if there were 60 families living in Israel at that time, Jewish families. But the Torah says it. You know, and uh, of course the, 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 the process, how we got there uh, is dramatic and it's insane almost. And if you look at the, just the, the history and, and how Zionism became a mass movement and then how the Holocaust contributed toward, uh, towards it, of course it's a controversial topic as well. But like, we can't possibly foresee what's going to happen. But we know that the Jewish people end up back in Israel. Why? Because the Torah said it. The Torah is uh, undefeated in its predictions. It has yet to be proven wrong. And these predictions are predictions that are opposing. So I can't stress this point enough. We'll be few in number, we'll be hated, we'll be scattered, we'll survive, and we'll get back to Israel. Each one of those things on their own, if they were a prediction that we got, it would be dramatic and remarkable. Hey, how the Torah know that we wouldn't grow, become a mighty nation? I don't know how the Torah knew. It's a wonderful prediction, right? If all we had was a prediction that we will remain few in number, which is mentioned, like we said, a few times in the Torah, that would be eye-opening. Yet, it says more. It says we'll be scattered, we'll be hated. We have evidence. And we know. If you want to, a history of anti-Semitism uh, is, you know, that book, uh, you would need maybe uh, you know, two or three bookshelves to write a uh, uh, abridged edition of that story. We know that that happened. And we know that we were scattered. We have evidence. We have documentation. We know, we know the dates. We know the people. We know the events of, of, of our expulsions, various expulsions. And we know that we got back to the land. All these things are tr- happened. And the author knew about it way beforehand. Go ahead. I'm still thinking about, Jenny, you talk about people like Judaism to the Bible days, then we're talking about the Inquisition, and people had to give up Judaism or else they chose, they chose to give it up. I shouldn't say they had to, but they chose, many chose to give up their Jewishness or else be killed, and then some secretly kept it. So these people were melting in with the society around them. Now, in today's time, there were those people that placed their ancestry or feel that they can place it back to those times. Now, does this law of return that you speak about allow these people who feel that they're placing it back to that period of time, are they considered Jewish? Yeah, so your question, your question, just to rephrase your question, uh, is about what we call today conversos or moranos, which are Jews that chose uh, to uh, convert as a ruse, to convert to Christianity uh, under the threat of expulsion or death otherwise, uh, and then, but secretly observe Judaism uh, clandestinely. Uh, and now a lot of people today, especially people um, from Spanish, Latino descent, uh, have traditions that, um, that they were part of those people. Uh, and the, 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 the mother always lit candles, and they had other traditions they didn't know where it was traced from, and a lot of them are coming back. Um, so you mentioned the law of return. Law of return is a law in Israel. 
that talks about anyone that Hitler would have sent to the gas chambers is allowed to come uh, seek refuge in Israel. That's the law. I, 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 I don't know if that's, that you're, that's what you're referring to. Uh, but uh, those people today, um, because there's a lapse in, uh, in overt Judaism um, for those people, because we don't know, means they have three, four hundred years uh, gap, and it's very hard to trace their antecedents and their history. Uh, therefore, if they want to, if they want what they, they do uh, typically is they uh, convert just to cover all bases, um, because it's possible that they're actually Jewish and they don't need conversion whatsoever, but it's possible that they're not. We don't know. There's a lapse. And even, uh, even I, I might have mentioned this previously, but even in the for, people from the former Soviet Union, they come, you know, they have 80-year gap in, in their Jewish life, uh, and they come to Israel, and yes, we don't question, we're not trying to question their sincerity, but we don't know. It, and they don't know themselves either. They have no record. There's no, there's no testimony. There's no record. Um, and therefore, it's a good idea for them to just cover all bases and just do the... If, if someone is a Jew and converts to Judaism, they lost nothing. If someone's not Jewish and they don't convert to Judaism, then they're actually not Jewish. So that's why, uh, to cover all bases, there has been a, an increase in this kind of conversion. Not someone who's, not someone who's, you know, who's definitely a non-Jew and is not in Judaism, rather someone who is, not, is unsure of their status and wants to just clarify it. So that's what we would have with those people. No, well, well. Yeah, well, it, it, it's, 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 well, the, you know, the theme, I guess, uh, is, is, I don't know if it's specifically mentioned, uh, uh, those particular people, uh, but that would fall under the category of this broader prediction, I would say. But either way, it's a nice little handy thing to, for us to remember that the Torah makes predictions that, of events that have happened only once, because it's not designed for these uh, events to happen in tandem. Right. It's not logical for, for a nation to be a small number, to be hated, to be scattered, to not be united by anything other than their religion, right? no common land, no common language, no common culture, yet to survive and to come back to the land of Israel. Those things, all those five elements uh, coupled together, if they just happen, they'll be miraculous, happen, and they're each predicted in the Torah. It's just mind-blowing. Uh, and remember, if, 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 the, human, if the human authors... Uh, were intelligent and logical, they would never write even one of those predictions. They never write, you'll remain small in number and survive. Because maybe, what if the nation just explodes? You know, natural growth. At the time of the Romans, uh, uh, 2,000 years ago, the Jewish nation was about the size of the Chinese. The Chinese today are billions and billions. You would argue that it's possible, it could have been that the Jews, if the Jews were billions and billions of people, wouldn't that... Fly in the face of the fact that we'll always remain small in number? How'd the authors know it? How'd the authors know that we'll be scattered? How'd they know? Well, if the Almighty wrote it, well then, the, 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 the past, the present, and the future is all known to him. That's a prediction that he could write. Humans can't know that. I want to finish with another important point that when we say that we, when we talk about the divinity of the Torah, we're also referring to the oral Torah. Remember, the oral Torah is not something distinct from the Torah. It's connected. And now we have a, a, a lecture or discussion coming up 
uh, that's going to dig into this idea very deeply. But I want to talk about some things that the oral Torah mentions, just very, very briefly. Oral Torah mentions, which are also eye-opening, and facts that were recorded many, many hundred years before uh, it was well known to everyone else. For example, uh, hemophilia. This is an interesting thing. The fact that hemophilia, or the fact that uh, a human, there could be a condition where a human doesn't have blood, the blood doesn't clot. Very dangerous. Someone who has hemophilia uh, to get a cut because they could just bleed out. Now, the Torah, the oral Torah, talks about a woman who has children, boys, who die because of circumcision. And it talks about her future sons shouldn't circumcise. And the reason future sons should not circumcise. Now, why? So we know now, we know now that uh, that hemophilia is linked to the X chromosome. Thus, unle- that it's very unlikely for a female to have hemophilia because she has to have both parents contributing a X chromosome to make her. Uh, you know, to make her not just a carrier, but also a sufferer of that disease. Yet the Torah, right, thousands of years prior, talks about hemophilia as being only present from the mom to uh, to the male son, not from the dad. Right? Dad's going to give either the X to the girl or the Y to the boy. Number one. Number two, the fact that a liver regenerates, right? The Talmud talks about, about an animal who has a, the majority of its liver removed. And that does not render it a trefa. Trefa is an animal that's bound to die. That's not kosher. Somehow the Talmud knew thousands of years, thousands of years before science knew that a liver regenerates. Uh, and lastly uh, is the exact length of a lunar moon. The Talmud gives us, the Talmud gives us down to the second the exact length of a lunar moon. Namely, 29 days, 12 hours, 44 minutes, and 3 seconds. I have no idea how you even do the calculation. I would have no idea. How do you know down to the second, the exact, even milliseconds, the exact length of a lunar moon? How do you do it? I don't know, but it's in the Talmud. I can show you where in the Talmud it is. Right? Obviously, uh, hundreds of years before science has actually came to such an exact number for that. So this is just, there's more to discuss about this, and we'll talk more about the oral Torah, but once, uh, you know, when we open the discussion of examining some of the statements of the Torah and asking ourselves the question, is it possible this was all made up by a bunch of clever rabbis or scheming, cunning uh, uh, fabricators? We have to also lean together uh, the, the, uh, the oral Torah as well in the discussion. And to, to, to finish where we started, I think when we really internalize these ideas, uh, it's possible before we walked in here today, we all believe the Torah was true, right? But when we see the evidence, when we see the overwhelming, just, just dramatic statements in the Torah that really make it impossible for us to even fathom the fact that it would be made up, now, I'm not sure what we discussed today. We had two previous discussions on this as well. Uh, it's important for us to know, like, this, this is really real. It's not just we accept it uh, based out of dogmatic faith or tradition. 
we have what to base it on. There's enough evidence in the Torah itself uh, to really remove any doubt, intellectual doubt, and hopefully begin the process of internalizing this knowledge that we have relegated to our mind and to actually live by that ideal, to take the Torah and really feel like we're holding the word of, of the Almighty, to really believe that the Almighty is speaking to us uh, through the Torah. That's that, guys. Thank you all for participating. This was lovely. And look forward to seeing you guys next time. And thank you, uh, Dave. Dave, come. Uh, for joining us. We'll look forward to seeing you next time as well.